John said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. And we'll have our children dismissed to the children's church at this time. And I would like the rest of you, if you would, to turn to Song of Solomon, chapter 1. Song of Solomon, chapter 1. If there's any one passage of Scripture... Uh, that I have gone to more often than any other, excuse me, in looking for direction and just an overall uh, uh, pattern for our ministry. Believe it or not, it's come out of that strange little book, the Song of Solomon. And some of you may have heard this sermon before, and I do not apologize for preaching it again, for uh, I need to hear it often. And, uh, and uh, it will not hurt uh, to be reminded of these things that are here. And uh, before we get into the sermon proper, I want to give just a, a little bit of background here. Most people think that uh, this book, the Song of Solomon, is one of those strange books that nobody should pay any attention to. And, and that is not true. Uh, the, it is God's Word, and the things that are in this book are for our admonition, uh, for teaching, for helping us understand some things. What we have is we have King Solomon. The book of the Song of Solomon was written, as far as we can tell, early in his reign. It is a book of joy. It is a book of, of uh, wonderful uh, truths. Ecclesiastes was written at the end of his reign. It is a book of despair. Uh, it is a book that uh, the life decisions were made, and they were made wrong. If you've studied the life of Solomon at all, uh, probably the uh, best sobriquet, the best name that we could give him was the world's wisest fool. He began his life serving God, and God gave him great wisdom. He ended his life serving false gods and setting the stage for the destruction of his people and the temple that he built. The book of Song of Solomon gives us some insight into the struggles of the king with his new bride, and the back and forth that is in the book of Song of Solomon is, a, is really a picture, a representation of what often goes on between you and I and the Lord. We don't get it right all the time. In fact, if the truth were known, we get it wrong a lot more than we get it right now, don't we? And yet, aren't you glad God doesn't take His love away? And what I want us to do is this first chapter here is kind of a summary of the whole book. And, and uh, we're just going to read three verses here. Song of Solomon. And while we were on deputation, while our hopes, uh, we traveled from church to church. For those that don't know what deputation is, asking other churches to support us, to help pay a salary for our family so we could move to New York City and start the Open Door Bible Baptist Church of Astoria. And uh, in many of those churches, uh, I preach this message here more often than any other because it describes our ministry here and 
over the years, I've gone back to it often and said, boy, I, I just need to be reminded of the things that are here in this book. And I want us to, Song of Solomon, chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 6 through 8. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. This is the bride speaking to the king. Look not upon me, because I am black, because the sun hath looked upon me. My mother's children were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards. But mine own vineyard have I not kept. Tell me, O thou whom my soul lovest, where thou feedest, where thou makest thy flock to rest at noon. For why should I be as one that turneth aside by the flocks of thy companions? Verse 8, the king speaks. If thou know not, O thou fairest among women, go thy way forth by the footsteps of the flock and feed thy kids beside the shepherd's tents. Here we have a real story from a real life. When we talk about understanding the scriptures, reading the Bible, and uh, the word that the world uses most often is the word interpretation. I always get just a little irritated when someone will say, well, that's your interpretation. I, I want to challenge you. There's only one interpretation to the word of God. And we have to understand some things in order to really get what is being spoken of here. And, and let's just go back and, and look at the life lived as it is represented in these three verses. The bride is speaking to the king, her engaged or espoused husband. And she's saying, don't look at me. Look not upon me. The verse before, she talks of her beauty, but when she speaks to the king, she says, Look not upon me, because I am black. Now, the Bible always explains itself. Look at the next phrase. Because the sun hath looked upon me. Now, summer is finally over. I love the fall. Everybody has to put their clothes back on or they freeze to death. Amen? I just love the fall. You say, what's wrong with the suntan? Well, you have to understand the culture of the day. In fact, the king, when we get down to verse 8 in his reply, is going to take his young bride and not bring her into the palace where she belongs. He is not going to finalize the marriage. He's actually going to send her away for a period of time. And the reason was because of this little issue that we just have no comprehension of. How could a suntan be a big deal? Well, probably the best way to explain it to you was the only people who would have a suntan in this day and time were the slaves. No person 
of any standing in society at all would be out working in the sun in the heat of the day. That was the job of those who had no future, had no plans. We talk about scandal today, but normally when we use that word, we're talking about some immoral behavior. Uh, the, The Bible word is the word reproach. It means offensive in every way. It was not that the king could say, hey, let's just cover this thing up and pretend that it didn't happen. Just move into the palace and we'll straighten it out. If she was going to be the bride of the king, she was going to be on display. And to have the bride of the king look like and be confused with a common slave would destroy the reputation of the king. Are we together on this? Can you allow your mind to think out of the box of Western civilization a little bit here to get a hold of what was going on here? And as she is standing before the king, she's saying, listen, don't even look at me because of the way I look. And then she gives her reasons. You know, how many times, let's just step aside for, from the picture for a minute. How many times do we get ourselves in trouble? Do we do things that are wrong? And then, but we have our reasons. I mean, the dog ate my homework. That doesn't work with God. Amen. We always have our reasons. Officer, I just wasn't paying attention to the speedometer. I'm glad they listened to that one once in a while. Amen. Uh, But the simple truth of the matter is, she immediately, just as is human nature, begins to give her excuses. She said, my mother's children were angry with me. Now, mother's children, uh, that equates brothers and sisters. Uh, I often like to describe my family in unique ways. One is I have six sons, and each one of them has six sisters. You do the math, amen? Wait, wait a minute. No, there's only 12, okay? But apparently, this woman, who actually goes unnamed in the entire story here, was the object of scorn and ridicule in her own family. He said, you have aspirations to be married to the king. We're going to fix you. We're going to take care of this situation. We're going to put you in the vineyards. We're going to make you work. Now, first time I read this passage, and and we're not going to take as much time as I have in the past here, uh, the keeping of a vineyard, how much work is that? Till I opened up an encyclopedia of horticulture. The keeping of a vineyard is the most labor-intensive work 
in agriculture known to mankind. It takes more work. I mean, I grew up, my dad grew up on a farm. And he did not want to deprive his sons of that opportunity. Only our farm was not much bigger than this auditorium here. Uh, but it was all tillable, and he made sure we knew how to do that work. And hoeing potatoes and raising corn and, and uh, all of the different jobs that went with uh, putting up uh, vegetables and fruits and things like that for the year. Uh, my dad said, we're going to raise it. Why buy it at the store when I've got three boys that can go out and work for it? Amen? And uh, But I began to study this. And boy, I mean, you just, you just can't imagine the work that was there. And the way the vineyards were set up is you would pick several different small locations and put two or three vines in there and they would grow. A grapevine can grow to an incredible extent and produce lots and lots of grapes and it takes just a multitude of work. The cluster has to be turned so that the sun will ripen the cluster evenly. How many of you ever thought about that? And yet, how many clusters will one vine produce? If you're going to get the best uh, grapes, that, that vine has to be pruned carefully at exactly the right time of year. It, there are just a gazillion little rules and regulations that you must follow, or you lose the harvest, you lose the fruit. Or it's a very inferior rate. And so her brothers and her sisters came together and apparently they forced her. That says they made her the keeper of the vineyards. In fact, her words are they made me the keeper of the vineyards. Just something to think about. How many of you have ever been forced to do something? that is just absolutely wrong and not fitting your character. We'll come back to this. But she says, they were angry with me. They despised me. They wanted to ruin my life. And here's how they did it, O king. The reason I look the way I am is because of what my family did to me. But there's one other thing that I've got to admit. As they made me the keeper of the vineyards, she says, but mine own vineyard have I not kept. She said, that one little place that belonged to me, that one little area that was my personal rep, uh, rep, reputation, the, the reflection of who and what I am, I had no time at all. The weeds are grown up, the harvest is lost, the birds have eaten anything good that might have happened by accident. There was absolutely no time at all to take care of my vineyard, and yet I have worked so hard that you can see by just looking at me and I wish you wouldn't look at me, by the way. It, you can look at me and know that I gave it my best. 
and I have failed. Now, in this day and time, the marriage contract and all of that was quite an ordeal. It was arranged usually between the parents. Now, could you imagine the emissaries of the king showing up at this woman's home and setting the terms of the contract and all of this and then the jealousy of the brothers and sisters who said, we're going to derail this thing because the king had the right to break that contract. Because she had not kept her end of the bargain. She could not move into the palace. She could not live with the king because of what she allowed to happen to her. And so what we call, what I call this in verse 6 is the plight of the young bride. In verse 7, we see her plea. She says, tell me, O thou whom my soul lovest, Now, who was she addressing? She was addressing the king. She had told him not to look at him. She had given her excuses and her reasons. And then she helplessly pleads before the king and says, But king, I still love you. I still want to be your bride. She said, Where thou feedest, where thou makest thy flock to rest at noon. Now, why would noon be so important? Because that's when the sun is out now, isn't it? She said, King, you you get your work done. How how do you get all of the administration of the kingdom? How how do you provide and read in the book of Second Kings and first and second Kings and Chronicles there, the stories of Solomon? I mean, the agricultural pursuits that just in order to feed the palace staff would be beyond your imagination. She says, where, how do you get your work done? Where make it, where thou makest, I'm sorry, where thou feedest, where thou makest thy flock to rest at noon, Look at this last half of verse 7. For why should I be as one that turneth aside by the flocks of thy companions? She said, why should I be like I am? There's no difference between me and a common slave with the exception of the fact that you as the king have promised to marry me. A question we often ask ourselves. Why do I have to be like this? Why do I have to suffer these things? Now, I I hope in, in your mind that you could see the picture of the king standing there. As this woman is pleading with him for her very life. The only thing that has meant anything to her of any value to her, it's all been lost except for one thing, the promise that the king has given her that one day she would be his wife. We call this a victim of circumstances. 
She said, but there's no difference, there's no reason, King, why you should keep your promise. Now the king speaks in verse 8. The first thing he says was not meant to be pleasing to her ears. He says, if thou know not. This is actually a rebuke. The king is looking at her in this pitiful state. And she understands that she's literally pleading for her life. If the king were to reject and break this marriage contract, she would lose everything that meant anything. She'd already lost her possessions. She had the animosity of her family. The only thing that was of any value at all. And the king says, if thou know not. You know what the king is saying? The first thing that you have to understand, it is not my fault that your life is in the mess that it is in. That little word, if. You talk about a big word in two letters. Kingdoms had been lost if. Souls have been sold for the word if. Fortunes beyond your imagination have been gained and lost over the word if. And the king says, if thou know not, he said, listen, it's not my fault that you don't know the answer. I want you to know that it was never my intention for you to be like this. And I'm not taking responsibility for it. Because it's not the king's fault. There's a rule in life that you need to learn. Don't take responsibility for things you didn't do. If this were the king's responsibility, what would that say about the king? It would say he didn't care about this woman at all now, wouldn't it? It would say that he was a harsh and a cruel and an uncaring king. And he says, listen, I am none of those. I'm objecting to that. But look at the next. There's no actual but in this verse. There's a comma there. He addresses her. He says, if thou know not, O thou fairest among women. He says, I'm not going back on my promise. He said, I'm not rescinding the contract of marriage. He said, I still look at you as the fairest among women. And someone might say, well... Solomon had a thousand wives before. Yeah, that was after this, not before. Uh, this would have been a meaningless statement if Solomon had a thousand wives and was adding one more to the mess. Solomon did all that foolishness afterwards. He addresses her as the fairest among women. And then, in those few words, he 
reassures her of his love and his commitment. Then he says, go. He says, go thy way forth. Now, when he uses that word thy, he's talking about you as an individual. He's saying, I'm going to have to send you a place where I am not going. I'm going to teach you where I feed my flocks and where my flocks rest at noon because it's going to take some time to right the wrongs that were done in your life. These things are not going to be healed in a week or a month. It's going to take some time here and I'm going to give you that time. He says, I want you to go thy way forth by the footsteps of the flock and feed thy kids beside the shepherd's tents. He said, I want you to follow in the footsteps of the flock, the definite article. He's talking about that which belonged to the king. And he says, you have responsibilities. The word kids here is not talking about kids, as we refer to. It's talking about baby animals. Usually goats are referred to as kids. Maybe some of our kids have taken lessons. I don't know. Oh, well, that's nothing to do with the sermon. But uh, we'll just get back here. The responsibilities that she would have for her personal possessions, her personal animals that were under her care and for her provision, he said, you're going to feed them beside the shepherd's tents. Now, why would that be important instruction? Well, in the Judean pasture land, it is not what we think of today as rolling hills and groves of trees. It was much more like the prairies. And if you've ever been on the prairie, you can see for miles. And there are no trees. Maybe just a little grove here or there by the uh, riverbed or the runoff. But the prairie itself is almost... A desert. It's amazing how all of that grass and things survive on a prairie. There would have been very few trees. But I'll tell you what, there was one place of constant shade. It was in the shadow of the shepherd's tents. And what is the best cure for a suntan? Get out of the sun. Amen? Now... This is the picture here. And if you study the rest of the Song of Solomon, you're going to see this back and forth of the bride trying to assert her authority or her uh, direction in the relationship with the king. And the king is going to come to her and... and uh, and there's going to be a rejection of what the king wants. And finally, in the back end of the book, it all gets solved. Much what happens in a marriage. There's some back and forth. But somebody's got to decide who's going to be in charge. Uh, the king's already settled that issue. He says, I'm going to be in charge. And he said, this is what you're going to do. And... Just to make a long story short, 
the bride obeyed the king's commandments, and in a matter of time, the issue was solved. She would be brought into the palace. There would be no reproach. There would be no whispers among the servants. There'd be no paparazzi there trying to tell dirty stories about what the bride had done before she had been picked by the king. All of that would have been solved by her following in the footsteps of the flock and resting in the heat of the day in the shadow of the shepherd's tents. Now we read in the New Testament that many of the things in the Old Testament were done as in samples or examples. They were living pictures. Uh, Most of us have heard the cliche, the little phrase, a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, God didn't just want to paint a picture on canvas here or with a camera. He wanted to paint a picture with the living lives of human beings so that we could see the emotion and we could see the things that actually went on in the hearts of individuals. Now, I don't think we have to go very far to figure out who the real king that Solomon is picturing is here now, do we? His name is Jesus. And one day he is going to be the ruler of this world. But he has uh, given a job to his bride. You say, who's the bride of Christ? Well, there's a lot of people that want to argue about that. But the Bible says two things. It says the church is his bride and the city, the new Jerusalem, is his bride. And so as much as we can understand, those people that are going to live in that city, the new Jerusalem, are the bride. Now, if you want to prepare yourself, the first thing you need to do is get saved. If you're going to serve Christ today, you're going to serve Him through His body, which is a local, physical assembly of believers. It's just that simple. But what did He tell His disciples before He left them? The last words before His ascension. Lo, I am with you always. Excuse me, He says... Let's, let's read it. My uh, memory is not... I was quoting the last verse instead of the first verse. Matthew chapter 28. The last three verses of Matthew's book here. It says, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. And all God's people said, that is the purpose, that is the scope, that is the duty of the church, the bride. Let me ask you something. Have we taught all nations? Has everybody been baptized and saved yet? Is everybody learning the things that Jesus taught? It almost looks like a losing battle, does it not? And so what do we do? We do the best we can. 
and what happens when we do the best we can. We fall short now, don't we? We fail. Um, let me ask you a question. Is mankind, our brothers and sisters on this planet, any less angry that you would want to serve Christ and not serve their gods with them? Is there any less persecution because of religion today than there was in Solomon's day? Uh, I would dare to venture a guess that there's probably far more persecution because of religion today. And, and by the way, communism is a religion. And, and so let's not forget about these things. There's a lot of uh, people out there that say, listen, if you don't agree with me, I'm going to do my best to kill you or force you to agree with me. Someone once said the history of mankind is described in these words. It is those who are able subjugating those who are unable to resist. That's pretty succinct history of mankind now, isn't it? Um, do you think it'd be a good idea for us to follow the picture and admit our failure and face the king? But the king has an answer. That's part of being the king. And this idea of kings and royalty, and I mean, the closest we come to it here in the United States is the uh, British royal family, which is probably the poorest excuse uh, that history has ever offered to what a monarchy really ought to be. The Queen of Sheba, who ruled vast portions of the continent of Africa, who had one of the richest spice trades in the history of mankind, came to see Solomon. And she said, I couldn't believe what they were telling me. I refused. They were lying to me. But after having seen it, what was her testimony? She said, the half wasn't told me of the glory of Solomon. Let me tell you, if you'll study some of the things that the medieval explorers, late 1500s, early 1600s, uh, they were looking for the city of gold. Um, let me tell you, the city of gold they were looking for was actually the Jerusalem of Solomon's day. They talked about a temple that was covered with gold. Uh, that was the temple in Jerusalem. They talked about kings that sat on thrones of gold. Solomon's throne was carved ivory overlaid with gold. Six full-sized lions, actually 12 full-sized lions on six steps, all ivory overlaid with gold. Can you imagine something like that? I can't. You see... The truth is, the king's response is the same as Solomon's response was to his bride, if thou know not. 
it's not Jesus' fault that you're all worn out trying to serve him. How many of you have ever gotten there? How many of you tried to do the best you can and look in the mirror and say, I'm just a failure at this Christian thing I give up? Uh, that's not Jesus' fault. He's not taking credit for that. That was never his intention. In fact, he made the narrow way so narrow that you could never walk on it in your own effort. Because he never intended you to serve him with human effort. You know what? It doesn't happen immediately. We spend too much time wishing for our fairy godmother that doesn't exist to show up and wave her magic wand and make everything right. Now that might work in children's little stories. But you ain't got no fairy godmother, I'm sorry, to break the news to you today. There is nobody going to show up and make everything right in your life. It takes time to repair what sin has done. And you're not going to get there by hopping the express train. The Bible says in the footsteps of the flock. Have you ever tried to follow in someone else's footsteps? It's frustrating. Because no two people walk alike. In fact, you have to change everything about yourself and your thinking and your momentum and your movement to actually put your foot inside the footsteps of someone else. Every time I read this passage, I'm often reminded of my children. They, uh, everyone, they'll get to a certain age and the first thing they want to do is daddy's shoes. And so he'll have my work boots on all the way up to his knees and the laces trailing halfway across the room and trying to walk in daddy's footsteps. You know what? It doesn't work. But it says in the footsteps, not strategic planning sessions. In feed thy kids, take care of your responsibilities in the shadow of the shepherd's tents. That's God's way, God's place, God's time, not yours. You ever wonder why God says wait on some things sometimes? It's because he's trying to teach you something. What does prayer do? If you read one of these foolish books on prayer, you would think that prayer is the force that moves God. Wrong! Prayer is the force that God uses to move you out of the way so he can do what he wanted to in the first place. That's why prayer is work and labor. Because God is using that burden to chip away at you and change you. But you've got to pray in the shadow of the shepherd's tent, not in your own effort. Prayers... Uh, by the way, Christians aren't the only ones that pray. Believers in the Bible are not the only ones that pray. In fact, many religions have written books on prayer to teach you how to pray. In fact, if you go to certain parts of the world, they have prayers written on little pieces of paper. And they put them in a pinwheel and that pinwheel will spin by the movement of the air. And they believe that that movement of the pinwheel is offering their prayers to God. 
Other people will light candles and say the flame of the candle carries my prayer to God. I don't understand how that works. It's not in the Bible. In the Bible, God wants you to talk to him. Is that so tough? Oh, yeah, it is. Because it's scary to talk to God. The Pharisee, how did the Bible say he prayed? He prayed thus with himself. Because if he had actually been praying to God, he would have been so held in awe of God's holiness and his own sinfulness that he would have been over there with the public and not even able to lift up his head toward heaven, smiting upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is the picture. Now, we have just a few minutes left, and I want to get to the application. we got a missions conference coming up. And I want to tell you something. Our church is doing all that it can. But that's not good enough. It's time to go to the king and ask for his provision. Amen? We're passing out a lot of tracks this summer. But that's not enough. We need to pray. Not just, okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to quit my job and I'm not going to do anything but pass out tracks 24 hours a day. Well, now you're disobeying all kinds of other things in the scripture. You see... It's not your planning. And the harder we work and try to please God, the more of a reproach and unfit to be with God we make ourselves. We become more and more like Cain who brought the works of his hands and says, God, here's what I can do. And God said, I'm not going to accept that. And Cain got upset. In fact, I've heard people say, Listen, I've done everything I know to do for God. If that's not good enough, tough. I said, it is going to be tough, my friend. Because God's not interested in what you can do. In fact, the only thing that you can do fully is fail. Now, Jesus said, I've come to give you life. I've come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. How many of you would say, boy, I have that abundant, don't raise your hands, but I have that abundant life. I mean, it is joy unspeakable and full of glory every day. Or how many would say, I could use a good dose of that abundant life. I mean, my hand would go up on that. The book of Nehemiah as the children of Israel were repenting and turning back to God and starting to worship God again the way God had said, the people at hearing the reading of the word of God wept because they looked at their lives and heard what God had said in his word and knew that there was no way they could get from where they were to where God wanted them to be. And Nehemiah's response was, you obey the word of God where you are today. Let me read you the verse. Then he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. Talking about the feasting that went with the sacrifices of the day. 
For this day is holy unto the Lord, neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. 1 Peter 1.8 says, Whom having not seen, ye love. In whom, though now ye see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Jesus said, Take my yoke upon you. How many people here actually know what a yoke is? My first introduction to a yoke was on the drive shaft of a vehicle. In order for that drive shaft to turn and run the vehicle, it has to move up and down from the engine to the uh, differential in the back. The old cars were all rear-wheel drive. Well, if you're going to spin something fast enough to go 100 miles an hour or 50 miles an hour, that's got to rotate awful fast now, doesn't it? So how do you get it to spin that fast and still have a joint in there, a bend? Well, you put a yoke in it. But how many people know what happens if that yoke breaks? Uh, it's called catastrophe. In fact, they made a federal law that they have to put special braces around the drive shafts of all buses that haul children because that drive shaft can break loose and actually come up through the floor and kill people in the vehicle. Or it can act as a jack and stand the entire vehicle up and turn it over and kill people in the vehicle. That's how dangerous a broken yoke is. Now, in Jesus' day, they did not have spinning drive shafts. They yoked animals together so that they could pull as one. We talk about horsepower. Well, there's no way you could yoke a 100 horses together and let them pull on one thing, but you could yoke two, sometimes three or four, together so that they could pull as one. They actually would lock those animals in together so that they could not move. There was only one direction animals in a yoke could move, and that's the direction that the yoke moved. And guess who controlled the yoke? The farmer. That's how he made crooked animals plow a straight line. Amen? Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. He says, lock yourself in with me. Learn about me. For I am meek, that doesn't mean weak, meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find what? Rest unto your souls. Uh, what was the solution for the bride in our picture? It was rest beside the shepherd's tent, out of the heat of the sun. Amen? Amen? Do I have to start? Go back all over again? I mean, I can do that. Believe me. Now, I want you to turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. And we'll be finished soon, I promise you. Second Peter chapter 1. Verse 3. 
It says, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. Now, if you have life and you have godliness, let me ask you a question. Do you need anything else? Hello? I I don't think so. I would think if you had life and you had godliness, you would have all that you need. The Bible says... And by the way, the second epistle of Peter was probably written somewhere in the late 50s, early 60s A.D. So it was written an awful long time ago. And he said that God, the king, according to his divine power, has given unto us, those that believe in his word, everything, nothing excluded, that pertain unto life and godliness... How do you get these things? Through the knowledge of Him. Now, I've preached the bulk of the sermon that I preached this morning. I can't tell you how many times over how many years. But it wasn't until preparing for this morning that I made a connection that I'd never made before. When the bride asked the king, Where thou feedest, where thou makest thy flock to rest at noon, tell me about these things, what was she asking? She was asking, though she didn't know it, she was asking to learn more about the king. You see, how many times do we think we need to do something or some things to please Jesus when the only thing that he wants us to do is to gain a knowledge of who he is? Because if you know who Jesus is, he'll take care of what you're doing. The reason we get discouraged, the reason we get distracted, The reason we get out of the way, the reason we get out of sorts with other people, the reason we have problems when other people are dumb, I mean, isn't that the way it works? We never think about the problems that other people have when we're dumb. It's just the ones we have when other people are dumb. Right? Ouch. That's what truth is, isn't it? We could solve those problems not by going out and sitting this person down and straightening them out. By the way, have you ever tried that? I don't recommend it. Because if God doesn't do the straightening, guess who isn't going to get it done? It's going to be you. It's going to be me. I give them a piece of my mind. You'd better not. You need all you have. Amen. Don't give anything up. Use it to learn about Him. 
What was the woman going to learn while she walked in the footsteps of the flock? She was going to learn how the king did his business, wasn't she? While she sat beside the shepherd's tents, guess who was going to be in the shepherd's tents? Well, the shepherds were, weren't they? Uh, Do you think the shepherds just sat in the tents and went, no, they were talking, weren't they? She was going to learn things by listening. By the way, they talk about the shepherds working for the king. It's called a pastor today. And what are pastors supposed to do? They're supposed to preach. And people are supposed to sit and listen. I always get a little worried about that song, Anywhere with Jesus, because that last verse says, Anywhere with Jesus I can go to sleep, except in church. Amen? But uh, here's the answer. My hope and prayer is 19 years from now, we'll all be in our little wheelchairs wheeling around. No. Hopefully not in 19 years. But some of us will still be in this room doing the very same thing that we're doing today. Following in the footsteps. One day at a time. One step at a time. And instead of expending human efforts, we're learning about Him. Because that's where the answer is. If you would only learn about the Jesus of the Bible, how could you say no to his salvation that he offers? The reason people say no is because they don't understand. They don't know about Jesus. They don't know about the Jesus of the Bible, I should say. There's an awful lot of Jesuses out there. Let me tell you, the world is full of saviors. Just turn on the news. Congress is going to save the day. Lord, help us. Amen. I don't want that kind of Savior. I want this kind of Savior. I'm going to learn about Him, and He'll stop me from worrying about all those ones that want to be. Amen. Ahmadinejad thinks he's going to save the world by destroying it. Listen to his rhetoric. I don't want that kind of Savior. I want the one that died on the cross to pay the price for my sins. I don't want a God that offers me a life that I can live by my own effort to be pleasing to Him. For what kind of God is that? I want a God that offers a life that cannot be lived by human effort, no matter how hard I try, that will, with His promise, give what I need to live the life that He wants me to live, that can only be lived through His power and His enabling. Amen? I don't want a cheap imitation of God. I want a God who is so dissatisfied with my ability that he sent his son to die in my place so that I could escape the punishment that is under the law. 
And the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And all God's people said, Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. My prayer is that we could see the picture that was painted by the lives of this young bride and King Solomon. That we would not allow the foolishness of Solomon in his later days to blur the picture of what you truly intended in his life. Lord, I pray that we would not be so wrapped up in ourselves and our own efforts that we would stop learning about you. Lord, there cannot be but some in this room that are not saved. Lord, the answer is they need to learn about the Jesus of the Bible. We love him because he first loved us. But God commendeth his love toward us, and while that we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, I pray that they would be willing to take the time to learn about you from your word. Lord, I pray for those that have learned enough about you, that they have taken that yoke upon them, that they have said, I will surrender my life to the Master. I will follow him. I will make him my Lord and my Savior, not by anything that I have done, but by the work that he has done. But Lord, it's not hard for us to lose our joy, to lose the abundance of that life, to get distracted and distraught, and all the other things that go along with it. Lord, that we would come back and be reminded by the words of the King. It's not your fault that we're frustrated. It's not your fault that we struggle. But Lord, we would heed your words to follow in the footsteps, to listen to the shepherds, to obey your word, your way. We ask that you would give our church the ability to serve you till you come for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's